Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hello, this is Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. My guest today is Dick Grace. And Living It, our thing with Living It is that we take experts in the experience of being human. Dick, you are an expert in the experience of being human. You're also a man of contradictions, which in a lot of ways is being human. You're a Marine who taught hand-to-hand combat. Now, as a stockbroker or investment analyst? Uh, Broker, absolutely. Salesman. Stockbroker, Buddhist, alcoholic, winemaker. Not maker, winery owner. Winery owner, okay. Philanthropist. Uh, and then, and then also a friend of his holiness, the Dalai Lama, who also was one of the few people who told his holiness that he was wrong, uh, which I don't imagine there are too many people. We will get to that one later. You also, you watched the bombing of Pearl Harbor with your family from your tree fort. What was that like? Do you remember it? Or have you just told the story so many times that you know the story? I, I really uh, candidly can't remember if I've manufactured a vision or it still is part of my, uh, what am I trying to say, gray matter, so to speak. But um, actually, I have a vision of it. Uh, my family lived on Aleva Heights. Uh, on one side of the family, we have about 175-year history in uh, Hawaii. Um, my grandmother lived on uh, Pacific Heights, uh, so we were on either side of the uh, New Wano Play Road. And we looked straight down on um, Pearl Harbor. My guess is five miles as the crow flies. My brother, six years older than I, uh, and myself were up in the tree fort and noticed this big commotion. My brother ran down, got my parents. Uh, they climbed up. My dad hypothesized that uh, for some reason the oil tanks uh, were uh, blowing up in uh, at uh, the storage tanks at Pearl Harbor. And uh, shortly after that hypothesis, <laughs> he was proved wrong because a Japanese aircraft uh, crashed about 50 meters from our front door. Really? Wow. So what was the, so so you thought, okay, well, this is explainable. And then... It was the Japanese attacking because you didn't really think that you'd be attacked by the Japanese. What was the feeling amongst your family of, of what was happening and were you in peril? Were, what, how, how did you react to it? I think that there was a, a general feeling that uh, the island would be occupied. And uh, consequently, the, uh, uh, my parents and every other family went through um, uh, a lot of blackouts and things of this nature over the ensuing months. And about a year after that, uh, my parents decided to make it for the mainland. Uh, and we did on a, on a ship and uh, settled up in the, the Bay Area, but still uh, kept uh, constant contact with Hawaii, as we do today. Wow. Now, I met you, when did we meet? It was, it was a little over 15 years ago, right? At the National Ability Center 
event, I think it was 2004 or 2005. And I remember distinctly meeting you at the top of the mountain because you were in my group. We were skiing that day. I think you and Annie were the, were the honorary chairs of the Red, White and Snow wine event, right? I think right. the first year that they did it and we went up there and, and I don't know if you remember this, but this is my introduction to you. And I think it'll work for the audience is that we were at the top of Bald Mountain. It was the beginning of March. It was warmer than it might've been in January or February, but it was not balmy by any means. And you were there dressed in a button down shirt, <laughs> a V-neck sweater. You had your glasses on. You didn't have a hat on, you didn't have any goggles, and you didn't have any gloves. And I said, Dick, aren't you cold? And you said to me, I don't get cold. <laughs> Do you remember that's, that? That's, that's, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> that's an accurate portrayal of who you were. So right. I've known you since then, but I don't, I don't really know beforehand. I know that you were a Marine. How did you become a Marine? How did you get into, into the Marines? How did you get steered in that direction? Well, I, uh, my wife of now 61 years, Anne, thinks something uh, about Pearl Harbor kind of uh, made me dedicate myself to that cause, but I think it's more than that. One of the things I've always tried to do was to extend myself, and maybe you would call it prove yourself or whatever. Uh, and I've always liked to uh, complete a cause, not ever let anything hanging. The little biography of, of my life is called Take the Hill, which came from uh, the Marine Corps, which means you don't stop halfway up. Uh, if you start out, you finish what you're, what you're starting. Uh, so uh, consequently, I think that was uh, some aspect of it. And at that period of time, the Marine Corps was known to be uh, the toughest of the uh, and most difficult and most physically uh, challenging of, uh, of the forces. And so I signed up uh, during my uh, uh, college days and uh, eventually became uh, an infantry officer in the Marine Corps and served in that capacity for a little over three and a half years. And you taught five years total, I think. Five years total, and you taught hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? I was involved in in that back in uh, back in Quantico, Virginia. It was a, actually an exercise uh, called Pugil Sticks, and uh, it, it was uh, a, an effort to get us uh, toughened up, competitive with one another. Uh, this was back in 1958, so it was a while ago, and at that period of time. Uh, there were no Navy SEALs. Uh, I think that branch of the uh, Navy was called the UDT, Underwater Demolition Team. Okay. Wow. And now the thing is, you taught this, but you were, you, you, no, no slight by any means, but you're not, you're not a huge guy. No, not at all. No, I, I'm about a 175 pounder and about five foot 10, uh, just about now as I was then. And, and so as a result, I'm assuming that you had, that it was the strategy, that it was, that it was what's going on in your mind that you were teaching to, to the other 
the other um, army guys. Yeah, well, no, not army. We had some- uh, Marines, some, sorry. Uh, yeah. form, uh, we had some Marines from other nations there. And uh, it was uh, our task to make them a little more uh, combat ready by our standards, not necessarily by their standards. And so five years in the Marines, and then, and then, and, and I think while you were in the Marines, you were doing, you're making some of your, some of your spending money. Did you have a creative way of making some of your spending money? Did you, did you do that with a pool cue? Is that while you were in the Marines or was that when you no, were in stock that was, <laughs> You remember a lot, Chris. Uh, that was, uh, that was after I got out of the Marine Corps and I went into the uh, investment business, um, which was really by chance. And uh, I had to do a four month training period uh, in New York City. And uh, we were virtually very, uh, very modest uh, funds to say the least. And uh, I did play uh, pool pretty well in those days. And I would make a journey around to a pool hall or two and uh, usually ended up uh, coming out with more than I went in with. <laughs> now, now what, what attracted you to the financial world, to being a stockbroker? Why, why did you go there? Well, uh, two reasons. Number one is I love risk. Mm -hmm. And I knew there would be degrees of risk. And that was how I practiced the investment business was, uh, was, was high risk uh, investments. Um, uh, number two, I tend to like things where there is a degree of measurement over a relatively short period of time, like a six furlong race in the horses is roughly about a minute and 11 seconds. Uh, and uh, the, the measurement in the, uh, in the stock market is almost instantly whether you've made a good choice or a bad choice. And uh, I'm not, let's put it this way, uh, I never have been what I would say a long-term investor. Okay, but you are, so, so this is the competitive nature, right? This is the competitive nature of get me into an industry where I can indulge in who I am competitively, where there's going to be risk and where there's going to be management. If I'm putting my work in, I want to know that I've been successful or that I haven't been successful. That's correct. Yeah, Do you, I, don't like, I don't like the word amorphous and I would be a terrible real estate investor. Why would you be a terrible real estate investor? Too long term. Too long term. You know, it's like watching grass grow. And of course, it could be a wonderful investment and all that. But you know, investment is not just to make money uh, or risk or whatever. Uh, you know, I think that there's, I, I love the stock market to this day. I loved it when I was in it. And here I am at 82 years of age. And, uh, I, and I still love it. Do you have any particular trades or investments that you look back and go, that was a big one. That was, that was, uh, you know, the, the stories that you tell after the years that you were in. Yeah, I have, I do have a couple, as a matter of fact, uh, um, you want the names? I don't know. I mean, are you allowed to do this? Are you allowed to, dis to disclose the names? No idea. It makes it more interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was a long time investor in a company called Medivation. Uh, which did extremely well. And most recently, I've actually been uh, heavily involved for the last three, three and a half years in the software area of, uh, of the stock market. And 
I think that's been certainly one of the top two or three performers over that period of time. Nice. How did you go, how does somebody go from being a stockbroker to owning, owning a vineyard and, and basically producing wine? And how, how does that happen? How does somebody do that? Well, you know, uh, Chris, I, how did you I do it? I, I've ever, uh, I've never had really what you would call a game plan. Um, I'm, I think I'm a 100% intuitive thinker. Um, so my basic belief is that um, uh, our intuition is who we are. And if you have the courage to stick with that intuition, you will more often than not uh, find an outcome that is most interesting. Um, and uh, that's the way it was with the wine business. Um, Annie and I were living a very comfortable life in uh, Orinda, California. Our youngsters were 15, 13, and 11. It was a wonderful uh, uh, golf, tennis, and cocktail environment, about a 30-minute drive from San Francisco. And I felt that uh, probably there was a change in lifestyle ahead for us. Um, we never looked for a, a home in the Napa Valley. Uh, but one day we came up for a wine tasting in uh, January of 1976. And we had the wine tasting at Fremark Abbey Winery. We were staying at a brand new country inn called the Wine Country Inn, just two or 300 meters away from the, the winery. And on Sunday morning, the owner of the just completed inn came over and introduced himself, made innkeeper talk for three or four minutes and then looked at his watch and said that uh, he was going to have to excuse himself, that he was doing some uh, uh, real estate investment now that, uh, or brokerage rather, now that the inn was complete. And uh, he excused himself, walked three or four minutes away and then came back and said, you might wanna take a look at this property. It's only a half mile away. It's basically quite run down. It's on three and a half acres, has lots of potential, and uh, it, it would be interesting to you. So Annie and I finished our cup of coffee, got in Ned's truck, and drove over here. And when I got 50 meters off of Highway 29, up the 100-meter-long uh, driveway, I knew that we would end up here. Uh, we took a look at the property for uh, probably 15 minutes. I had a one-minute conversation with Ann, got back in Ned's uh, truck and started back to the wine country inn, got halfway down to the drive uh, to the highway and said, uh, Ned, we're going to buy it. Uh, he stopped the truck so quickly that we almost went through the windshield. We went back that afternoon and made a bid on the, the home, uh, 3.5 acres, including a home. And uh, the remnants of some uh, old um, uh, almond trees, uh, excuse me, olive trees. And uh, the bid was accepted on Monday morning, so we knew we paid too much. And we told our kids we're moving to the Napa Valley. And our oldest, uh, 15 at the time, said, well, dad, what's the Napa Valley all about? 
And I said, I really don't know. It's about agriculture and it's going to be a great adventure. So uh, we moved up in June of 1976 and uh, the rest is kind of history. I, I got in, I had no intention of getting into any aspect of the wine industry. But my friend at that time, Mike Richmond, and still a friend who worked for Fremark Abbey Winery, he and I were having lunch one day when, uh, before we moved in and we were coming up and trying to make whatever judgments on improvements we were going to do. And he said, you know, Dick, uh, uh, that front one acre with once again, the old olive trees on it, uh, would make a wonderful vineyard. And my response was, I said, Mike, I've never planted anything. I've never even planted radishes. And uh, he said, well, it'd be a great adventure. And there came that word again. And so uh, we asked the previous owners if we could clear the land. Uh, we replaced on the property as many of the olive trees as we could, sold off the balance and started what is the first acre uh, of Grace Family Vineyards in uh, uh, January of, uh, no, in April of 1976. And so this was just an adventure. This was a whim. You, you were moving and, and you had to do a lot of work on the house in order to even move in. And then another adventure comes with, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll plant some grapes and, and we'll do that. Where does it go from there? Because, because, I mean, did, did you think that you were going to make wine? I mean, if you're growing grapes, you thought you were going to make some wine, I'm assuming. No, that's, that's not correct. Uh, actually, uh, uh, our initial plan was to sell the Cabernet off. Uh, I was uh, a friend of Charlie Wagner, uh, the founder of Camus in those days. And uh, the, the thought was that we'll sell off our Cabernet to uh, Charlie, I think the price then was about $600 a ton. And it's a large multiple of that now, I'll guarantee you. Um, we really uh, took excellent care of the property. I, I am always interested in anybody who does a craft or a trade the best as it can be done. So whether it's uh, textiles or wooden calabash bowls from Hawaii or uh, uh, painting or watchmaking or shoemaking or anything. I always try and seek out the people who have um, exceeded uh, average by a long way and become renowned in their particular persuasions. In this case, uh, I knew nothing about planting grapes. And so I seeked out uh, Lori Wood, uh, from uh, Fremark Abbey at the time. Uh, one of his foremen was Jim Barber, who's still a vineyard manager in uh, uh, California, uh, Napa Valley, and very well-known and well-respected. And we started uh, taking the best ideas uh, of those men and putting them into a reality. Uh, Chris, to be quite honest with you, I've never taken a course on vin uh, I've never taken a course on winemaking, uh, but I just tried to do the best that we could do that just kind of made sense. That was my rule of thumb. If this makes sense, uh, let's not compromise. Let's do the best. I think it's probably the oldest uh, 
um, organic vineyard uh, in the Napa Valley. And it's been organic since the beginning, right? And uh, that was a choice you made. Correct. What's that? That's basically correct. I think that there was one day where we had to use a, a, a chemical in order to rid ourselves of a disease called oak root fungus. And uh, to my knowledge, that's the only uh, chemical. And that was a long, many, many years ago. So, so, so you started organically, I mean, basically organically, you took all this information from these experts and you, in some ways, you and Annie, I would imagine are kind of collectively looking at this saying, okay, I think this makes sense. And I think that makes sense without necessarily having the experience to make some of these Zero decisions. Zero experience. <laughs> right, exactly. I was giving you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. One of the things you did that sounds like it was, it was significant was moving the vines further away from each other? Actually, uh, uh, the opposite was true. Okay. Uh, we actually crowded them up. Um, to uh, make them struggle. Mike okay. Richmond uh, told me that grapevines were like people. And if they struggle and come through the other side, they have finer character. Well, if you spent some years in the Marine Corps, that type of thinking makes sense to you, you know. So uh, we narrowed the spacing and we actually got about three times as many vines uh, on the one acre as would have been commonly practiced during that period of time. Uh, okay, so you went to struggle because, I mean, you'd already made that decision, obviously you said with the, with the Marines, you wanted to struggle, you, you sought other people who struggled as well. Now, what happened? What happened when you when you went to harvest on these things that you'd made these these grapes struggle, and then and then what happened? I mean, harvest is a beautiful time to be in Napa. It's one of those you just sort of smell the fruit as you're driving through, and but but I would imagine it's a it's a fairly big undertaking to well, pick all of this fruit. About, uh, let's see. Mm about the first maybe 10 to 15 years, we had family and friends uh, assist us with the harvest. And uh, the first year we had, uh, plus our family, about seven friends. So that totaled about 11 people uh, doing the harvest. We were completely inexperienced. Uh, it would have taken a normal crew about an hour to harvest the vineyard. And it took us about six and a half hours. Uh, and we had lots of cuts and uh, lots of bruises and lots of sugar all over ourselves. And we, uh, we drove the fruit down to uh, Camus at about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Had we have gotten there at the normal time, Charlie Wagner would not have been there. But uh, uh, as it was, he was out watering his vegetable garden before dinner, and we showed up with the fruit in lug boxes in the, bo in the back of about five station wagons. Five and, station uh, wagons. So how much, how much space are we talking about? I mean, lug boxes, you're, this is a, these are a lot of grapes, right? Well, I mean, not by, by those to... standards, it was a, a lot of grapes for us, but it wasn't a lot for for uh, a sure. lot of vineyards, that's for sure. Right. We, we basically undercropped the vineyard. Um, uh, we, we showed up, we looked like Ma and Pa Kettle going to town. I mean, here <laughs> we came up with the fruit in the back of station wagons and friends and all that type of thing. And 
to say that I am uh, uh, compulsive and a neat freak and all those types of things uh, is completely accurate. So the quality of the picking of the fruit was almost perfect. There wasn't a, any foreign matter in the lug box. The, the, the clusters were laid in there very carefully. They all looked uh, uh, like a display or a painting maybe of a lug box filled with grapes. And when we arrived at Camus, that, uh, 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 that caught Charlie's eye. And Charlie was an experienced uh, uh, vineyardist at that time. And he sauntered on over to the car uh, took a look at the grapes, reached in, grabbed a cluster, took a chaw, spit the seeds out, did it a second time, did it a third time, and then looked at me and uh, said something that changed our lives. He said, Dick, he said, this is damn fine fruit. Instead of us just buying it and putting it into our nap of Valley Cuvée, let's keep it separate and see what kind of wine it makes. And so of our first vintage, 1978, we made uh, two barrels of wine, which is the rough equivalent of 49 cases of wine. Wow. And so, so you stepped in it at this point. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of dumb luck in a lot of ways, right? You just, you ended up, you were late. He said, this is good fruit. And then what did, what, 49 cases, but what did that wine taste like? One thing it had a, a difference right from the onset during the aging, which I think was about two and a half years in uh, oak barrels, uh, was a, a wonderful degree of balance. So the wine was never out of balance. It always showed a, a, a good degree of balance. And uh, that's kind of the hallmark of the wine to this day. Is, is that balance. And what did this, so, but you became, you became one of the first, if not the first, cult wine in Napa Valley, right? So it, it started, what, it was like $25 a bottle back back in the 70s and has accelerated. Do you, do you know what, what a bottle would sell for now? I think the price from the winery to whatever account we have is approximately $300. Um, yeah, Colt. That's an interesting thing. We are accused of being the uh, the first Colt wine, which is kind of uh, uh, unusual because when I was in college, my mother was terrified I was going to join the Colt. And, uh, so, <laughs> so you created one. I, I created one instead of joined one. Well, the second Colt I joined was the Marine Corps. So yeah, first first Colt rather. Wow. So, but this, this became a stepping stone, right? And so where were you with regard to, with regard to the stockbroking uh, and, the, and the making of the wine? And also where were you in sort of your personal transformation? Was there a personal transformation that was going on during this time as well? Well, you know, um, to be sure, uh, I've had more than my share of alcohol. Matter of fact, the joke is, uh, or my joke is that I had enough by the time I was 50 that if I uh, lived to be 100, I'd be where the average drinker would be. Uh, so I made a decision at the age of 50 uh, to stop drinking. I felt that drinking was becoming too much an aspect of my life. Um, and uh, uh, on occasion, I certainly drank excessively, um, and 
in the last couple of years, I really lost the joy of, of, uh, of drinking. I had attempts before that knew that my drinking was more than likely uh, excessive. And uh, then uh, after um, uh, several attempts, I did something that was a little bit foreign to me because I don't often go out to seek help. I, I would rather give help. Uh, but since uh, stopping was, uh, was uh, extremely difficult, I went out and uh, seeked out a program that uh, seems to have uh, worked for the last 33 years. And did this come about as a result? Did your, your friends and family, I mean, is it the intervention that we hear about of like, Dick, you need to, you need to do this or was this your decision? This was 100% uh, uh, my addition. I, I don't think that I ever got a recommendation to necessarily, a lot of people didn't think that I uh, drank too much too often, but nevertheless, it was really my personal decision because I was continuing to do something that I knew probably wasn't really good for any aspect of my life. And, and so what was the group that you sought out or the individual that you sought out to help you with this transition? Well, they, uh, they, they want to remain anonymous at the level of uh, okay. television and radio and podcasts, so I can't mention it. But um, I, still, uh, I still go back when called upon um, to speak at a meeting or so, uh, because that program was, uh, was absolutely necessary for me to get a start on long-term sobriety. It, it's easy in a lot of ways to look at the at the alcohol part of it as an alcohol part of it and and possibly an addiction and all these things but there's also there has to be a personal transformation that happens there and was there a personal transformation that happened for you and did it affect you going forward was there was there a different person before and after well uh, i think it's the same person but i will have to tell you that probably uh, something that hampered me becoming who I really wanted to be was the fact that I had been very lucky and I had achieved so much uh, and so many things. I started, uh, one of the things that the program did for me was convince me that I was not the center of the universe. Uh, you learned this at 50. So you made it a long time thinking you were the center of the universe. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't maybe the exact center, but I was pretty close. And uh, uh, yeah, and uh, the realization is uh, the fact that I'm just another bozo on the bus. And I've been given some strengths. And if I magnify those, the world will be a better place. I have lots of weaknesses, and if I try and diminish those, I'll be more effective in affecting the lives of both others and myself. So does that get to be, is that your personal philosophy? I think you have a few personal philosophies in some ways, but is that, is that one of your personal philosophies that, that you're, just, you're just part of the group? As you say, you're, you're one of the bozos on the bus. As opposed that's to being exactly, the that's exactly my philosophy. Uh, the way I illustrate it uh, uh, most aptly is the fact that I can walk into the Dalai Lama's home in uh, in Dharamsala, which I've done many times, and be warmly greeted by him. And I can walk into a leper colony in Calcutta, India, and be warmly greeted by the lepers. 
And honestly, Chris, I don't differentiate. To me, we're, uh, we're all in this leaky canoe together. Uh, we have to pedal especially hard right now because I think we have some real challenges out there. Uh, and uh, this is a time for us to get in sync, get in harmony and move forward. Did this happen as a result of, it's interesting to see because you had on one side, you have, you have this winery that, that is, is selling wine that's going for a lot of money that, uh, that ultimately ended up funding your foundation, your ability to really affect a change. When did the Buddhist part of it come in? Because it sounds like from having read about and knowing you that, that you talked about sort of a Buddhist philosophy in that there's no them. There's just us. That's correct. I, uh, you know, I, I truly believe in the interdependence of, of everything. Uh, as I say, we are in this, uh, in this leaky uh, canoe together. I think uh, amongst people who have become somewhat affluent or are affluent, they tend to spend time, lots of time, with people who are like us. And the luxury of my and Annie's uh, life is uh, we have spent time with the, the broadest possible uh, range of people, um, a lot of them vastly underserved in the field of education, in the field of uh, health care, in the field of opportunity, in the field of basic nourishment, et cetera, et cetera. And I never look upon those people as, uh, as needing my help. The way in which I view those people is, what heroes? What heroes? They can get up every day not knowing maybe where their next morsel of food is coming from or their clean drinking water or whatever, or how they're going to provide that day. Uh, you know, one billion of our 7.5 billion people live on a dollar a day and another billion live on two dollars a day. I've always believed that the vast discrepancy from the haves and the have-nots uh, is, is the basis of most of societal's problems. It's never going to be equal and shouldn't be equal, but the gap right now is, is, is too high maybe narrowing a little bit, uh, I'm not exactly certain, but we're doing our best to try and narrow it. Uh, a quick example of that is uh, while we uh, are selling a bottle of our wine at a restaurant like the French Laundry uh, here in Napa or Per Se or uh, any of these other fine, wonderful, elegant restaurants, the wine sells somewhere uh, between $700 and $1,200 per bottle in a restaurant. Um, the 20 children uh, surrounding Anne and I in the book I wrote uh, in, in Tibet uh, were drinking fecal infected water. So these things don't make sense to me. Uh, I'm striving for, for justice. Um, I think we need justice in prison reform. We need justice in, in a reallocation of, of, uh, of tax law. Uh, I think our brothers and sisters uh, deserve a shot at becoming assets uh, to society. We've directed the, 
the, uh, the well-being of about uh, 10 young women uh, over the years, not just with scholarship money, but with directions for grants, directions for applications to various colleges. Um, I took eight of them for my 81st birthday uh, to Ireland, and they're now graduates of schools like uh, Columbia, University of Wisconsin, University of San Francisco, uh, uh, Yale, uh, Harvard. Uh, it's just extraordinary. So what I believe is, if given the chance, that people will do the best they can. You'll have some disappointments, but far fewer than you think you would have. When did wine become a catalyst for healing the planet? What was that back in 76? Was it in 77? How did this, how did this mission start? We started our foundation, uh, my, my best guessment right now is in 1990, uh, shortly after I stopped, uh, stopped drinking. And wine is a wonderful uh, um, addition to life. Uh, it's one of the few things in societies right now that will cause you to sit down and to cogitate and to have conversation, uh, wine and a good meal and the dining room table and all these things. And I'm thinking quite often with all this technology advancement, I certainly realize the positive aspects of it and we use it with our foundation, but I think we're becoming far too dependent on, on this technology. Uh, I don't think text messaging will ever replace uh, speaking to an individual, the eye contact, the body language, the inflection. We're just not going to get those. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we may be losing a degree of our humanity. Community is, is really big for you. And I know on Friday you had, you had your men's meeting. And, and you've been doing this for what, 33 years? Is that what you said? That's it. It's about 33 years, exactly. 33 years, and it's, it's early in the morning that you all get together? It's every, uh, every Friday that I'm home. We travel about three months a year. It's every Friday uh, that I'm home. Uh, it's called the men's meeting, which isn't exactly correct uh, because we've had an, any number of, of uh, females attend and add to the meeting. Um, I do think there is a comfort in uh, a same-sex meeting, uh, be it male or female, because we're often in our own gender uh, more willing to share something that is more personal uh, and more honestly. So the meeting has been, I wish I could describe it to you, uh, but I can think of uh, only two things. Number one, uh, is the honesty uh, and trust that people uh, have, uh, have put in one another. And I'm just going to grab this little statue from my desk right now because this is kind of the, uh, the emblematic of, of, of the meeting. I, I hope you can see it. And uh, it, it's a man standing, and if you'll notice, uh, uh, he's leaning against a support. And you know, I think that all of us need a degree of support at some time in our lives. And we need to be supporters as well. And is this meeting, is it, is it more personal support? Is it business support? Is this similar to like, 
you know, Benjamin Franklin back in the day where he'd bring all of the, all of the leaders of Philadelphia together and, and sort of shape the future or so is it personal or is it business or what, what is the crux of it or is it everything? I think it's, I think it's a sharing of, uh, of our, of our um, uh, personal traits. Um, sometimes the subject will be, uh, when was the last time you cried? Sometimes the subject will be, when was the last time you laughed? Uh, sometimes the subject will be, uh, what is on your bucket list? I like to see a bucket list as empty as possible because I like to see people try the things that are in their bucket list. I have two major ones uh, right now. I want to take our, our son, Kirk, to uh, New Zealand fly fishing. Kirk is now 60. Um, I'm going to jump out of an airplane for the first time with my, uh, I'm 82, my cousin's 84. And uh, she's never jumped out of an airplane, nor have I. So you'll have a, what's that, a, a 166 years of human beings coming out of an airplane. But uh, there's so much out there, you know, uh, to have a full bucket list. I think you ought to examine. People always have a, an intuitive sense, Chris. And I like to think of myself following that intuition. But things get in the way of it, and they're the poison of thinking. Uh, suddenly, a wonderful thought becomes too far away, too expensive, too time-consuming, too risky, too inconvenient. And all of a sudden, we've had this desire and this urge within ourselves to, uh, to accomplish something, and our, our mind deters us. So that's what I call stinking thinking. Do you start these meetings? Do you have an agenda on these meetings or is it just organic? That It's organic completely. It, it evolves. Sometimes I bring up the subject matter. Uh, we don't like to get onto politics too much because we're all single-minded and we all don't want to <laughs> be the dead horse. And uh, uh, to be very candid, maybe you'll edit this out, but we're not supporters of the current uh, administration. Uh, so we don't want to beat that dead horse. That's like singing to the choir. Uh, we want to open new vistas and uh, new ideas and challenge our own thinking. Um, and we've done some community outreach programs and uh, we've done some protests and, uh, uh, of policy, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we want to carry the results of that one hour on the Friday morning into our conduct. To make it part of who you are. And also to Absolutely. realize that, that you are connected, right? That you are connected as a group. And I, I think at your point about texting, that sometimes you can feel so separate from somebody, even if you are communicating with that person, this is, this is you're there in the flesh and you're, you're connected with these people and you've been connected with them for 33 years, which, I mean, just to, you know, you, you have the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the agrarian model right there with you. You are part of the soil in some ways. Yes, there, there's six to eight real regulars who have been coming for a long time, but we have some uh, new people very often. And uh, a man who attended just his second meeting, my guess is he's in his mid-70s. He said... I have shared more about my personal life at this meeting 
than at any other time in my life. And the reason was that I felt safe and I felt the honor of the group. And it was such a relief to be able to talk about what causes me anxiety and concern. And to realize that he wasn't alone in that because it's so easy to feel like your anxiety and concern are yours alone and everybody else is fine, right? How did your, back to the foundation, how did you decide where you were going to use your assistance, where you were going to apply your assistance? Well, the rule has evolved, but now it's about 100%. And that is we, we support virtually no organizations. Uh, we are involved with delivering the capital or sending it straight on to a college. And we are in touch with every one of the people to whom we make a financial donation. I've always been uh, very interested, Chris, in the word philanthropy because uh, most of the time, or much of the time anyway, people hear the word philanthropist and they think of capital. And I would argue strongly there's philanthropy of much more your time, your energy, your talent, your vision for the future, certainly your capital. But the number one thing that we can be philanthropic with is love. And, and so I went with you to Tibet. And I'm trying to think of when that was. Was that 2000 and it was not 2005. It was probably 2008. Maybe it was even later. I think it was, I think it was uh, 2008. I think it was. So many trips that they all have blurred a little bit. I would imagine that they have blurred. And in, in, I mean, an absolutely spectacular place to visit. One of those places that just, I mean, with the mountains, just, just going, going up into the, into the heavens really in so many ways. And, and, but, and you'd supported almost exclusively women there. Is that, is that the case in Tibet? Yeah. Uh, my history is absolutely of the fact that women are a better investment than men. I hate to sound that way. I think they're more nourishing. I think they uh, follow through in a, in a better way. I think they use the money more thoughtfully. Uh, when I was looking into the microloan business, I think that at that period of time, about 90% of microloans made around the world go to females. Interesting. And so it was females, and most of this was education though, right? Females and, and educating females? Uh, it would be education, uh, number one, without any doubt. Um, uh, number two would be uh, the, the things like um, uh, medical care and nourishment. But sure. right now, we are strictly into the educational aspect. Right. And you did, when we went, you actually did cataract surgery. You helped, you helped to fund a cataract surgery, which was absolutely mind-boggling to see these people come in whose lives were effectively over, right? They, they had cataracts, so they couldn't see anymore. And it's basically wait to die kind of thing. I think that we did on that trip, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think that we did somewhere around 65 elders, 75 elders. And I think also uh, three, uh, uh, three young people with infantile cataracts. And what a wonderful operation that is. A person comes in with 
virtually no vision clouded or actually in some cases no vision and uh, it, since it was primarily a nomadic population the doctors actually did two eyes at the same time which is not normal here for the possibility of infection uh, uh, coming from one eye to the other but it was just remarkable to see these people after treatment after one night with bandage eyes uh, see their uh, their sons and their daughters and their wives and their grandchildren uh, take the, uh, the, uh, the, the covers off of the eyes and the person for the first time, maybe in years, actually be able to see. It was mind boggling to see how quickly and how transformational that was for people from not being able to see to being able to see to ultimately being able to live right? To not being a burden to society in, in their mind, but then also being able to contribute, being able to be a part of, of life moving forward. And it's just, and how quickly that, that surgery happens too. I mean, it's a relatively quick outpatient surgery. I mean, there's a line of people and they just, you know, slice, they took the lens out, put another one in and, and boom, and you're ready to go. And it was, it was a, 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 a an amazing thing to see. Did your work in Tibet attract the attention of the Dalai Lama? How did how did you end up meeting him? I mean, he is a he, he is he is a spectacular human being. Well, um, I think he has, he calls me a man of action, uh, and and sometimes uh, he gets a little angry with me because too much action. But I met him after a speech he gave at the Greek Theater about twenty seven years ago at the University of California. And uh, I was invited just by chance to a small reception um, uh, for him at the Fairmont Hotel. And I asked if Ann could come down. There was only 16 people going down. And uh, they said that uh, uh, that would be fine. So we were the last to arrive. And uh, these people were doing a lot of things like prostrating themselves too him and putting a cot around and, and making the Buddhist signs and all that. And I would have been a little hypocritical to do that because I didn't know what it was all about. So I was the last to meet him and I just uh, uh, gave him a firm grip and he gave me a firm grip and I kind of went to withdraw and he seemed to want to continue to, to, uh, to hold on to my hand and pull me towards him and things of this nature. So that was the first contact. It was physical, but beyond that probably. About three or four months later, um, I made my uh, uh, my way to uh, Dharamsala, and uh, I've been completely frank with him on a number of things, like the need for better gender equality uh, within Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is not gender equal, and my feeling, for what it's worth, is it's got to become and is becoming uh, more. We've talked to him about. Uh, his attitudes on, on gay and lesbian relationships. We've talked to him about uh, all manner of things that most people don't talk to as only this regarding. Well, I would imagine that very few people have an honest conversation with someone of that, you know, esteemed, high esteemed place, right? So, so it probably is something that's nice for him in some ways. It's probably a little, uh, little strange to be challenged, I would imagine. But, but so is that what fostered this relationship between the two of you, just this, this honest interaction? I think that's it. 
I mean, he knew that I would not alter uh, my opinion and, uh, in his presence. Um, uh, uh, probably fairly famously, I, uh, I outed what uh, many, many people, to include myself, uh, believed was a uh, corrupt llama and um, basically proved a number of instances where he had not lived up to the responsibilities of a llama and, uh, and uh, he was, uh, I guess, dethroned is what you could call it. Uh, and uh, that, was a, that was a difficult circumstance uh, for His Holiness because you don't want to believe that you have people like that in your flock. But nevertheless, uh, I felt it wasn't responsible for this person to be there, and I felt he had committed a number of, uh, of actions that detracted from His Holiness and His Holiness's uh, reputation for being a, peace, uh, a peacekeeper. But that caused some friction between the two of you, right? Between you and His <laughs> Holiness. Am I understating it? Um, you got it. I didn't think you were going to nail me with that one. Um, at any rate, uh, in, the, uh, in the year or two after uh, these events became known, he was basically dethroned from a lot of his responsibilities. He was living in Hollywood or in Los Angeles, called, him the Lama, called himself the Llama to the Stars. And uh, uh, I think that he probably took some, re, some, uh, uh, some liberties. opportunities and liberties, thank you, uh, that he should have in his uh, position. And uh, I thought it was completely inappropriate. Uh, unfortunately, after uh, his dethroning, so to speak, uh, he kind of made his way back up the ladder in a number of areas. And uh, I didn't want to see that, frankly. I don't think he deserved uh, to be reinstated to anything. And I went over to, <laughs> to uh, Aramsala to let His Holiness know that I thought it was inappropriate. And uh, we, we did. We got into a a little bit of a discourse, which ended up with me being uh, escorted uh, uh, from his uh, greeting room to the great outdoors by him. Anyway, I guess that's a pretty good thing. I kind of cherish that moment because I would have done the exact same thing again. And it's also like my, uh, my canceled visa from the Chinese government when I was kicked out of China because of my friendship with the Dalai Lama. Uh, that was the year of the uh, earthquake in uh, Nepal, the tragic earthquake. So I quickly hopped on a plane from uh, Chengdu, China to uh, Seoul, Korea, and then down to Kathmandu and was able to assist with a dear friend of mine uh, by the name of Sanjay uh, and, uh, and a Tibetan fellow uh, and do some uh, help towards the devastating earthquake uh, uh, that hit Kathmandu some years ago. So how did, how did the Unsung Hero of Compassion Awards come about? I know I have received one, uh, yeah. which was spectacular. As a matter of fact, your picture, as you know, is over on my uh, desk, uh, you with two of our, our grandsons. I know, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I tend to do a lot of things I probably shouldn't do, but I don't know if you recognize yourself there. 
So there you are with two of our grandsons. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the older one there is now 28 years old, Chris, and you look a little older than you did then too. <laughs> I don't know, Dick, I think we need to get your eyes checked. I don't think I look any older. <laughs> That's true too. Oh, uh, but what, so, so, so why did you, what, what is the Unsung Hero of Compassion Award and why did you decide to do it? And Yeah, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people laboring mightily uh, to help our underserved sisters and brothers in, in many, many, many areas. And I believe too much accolades and too much credit is, is being given to the chief executive officer or, or the, the chairman of this NGO or whatever it is. And, and so I wanted to get some of the people who do the grunt work. They're not the quarterback or the, or the tight end, uh, you know, they're the tackle and the guard and the center uh, of the team. And so uh, we've had four of those events. I had hopes of doing a fifth but I think those hopes have been dashed uh, because uh, of the virus and a bit, of course, because His Holiness is now 86 years of age and probably be traveling a lot less. But I wanted to honor the people who uh, change the diapers, who invite the kids uh, into their home, who, uh, who are assistant scrub nurses, who, are actually on the firing lines of compassion and kindness. And in your and Sarah's case, uh, you know, here you are reaching out to other people uh, who have had some physical disabilities and show them that there is a life after disabilities. There are sports after disabilities. There are ways to express yourself. Uh, and, uh, and so it was called Unsung Heroes of Compassion. And uh, uh, roughly 204 people have been, you being one of them, uh, honored. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a way to say, hey, let's not forget that goodwill does not necessarily accrue to just our leaders and our heads. It filters down to so many people who on a daily basis without the expectation uh, of return, extend the hand of friendship and help to an underserved human being. Now, also parity, right? Gender parity. So yes, 50 people, 25 and 25. Do you remember what you said to me when I received, when I, I, I came up on stage and it was alphabetical. So Waddell being toward the end of the alphabet, I was almost at the end. And, and His Holiness put the cocktail around and, and sort of blessed me. And then I went and shook your hand. Do you remember what you said to me when, uh, when you shook my hand? I thought, I thought maybe uh, I might have said something to you like, uh, Chris, this is just the start. It's, this is no time to sit in your laurels. You're just, what did I say? You, you're right on the money. That's exactly what you said. Because it was, <laughs> it, it, was, it was the yin and yang, right? Because it's this, it's this, beautiful moment of being in the in the sort of you know corona of the of yeah. the uh, of his holiness and then and then the reality of uh yeah you said yep you, you realize you're just starting on this journey and i said oh yes i'm i am i am acutely aware but that's also the response of a lot of people five years afterwards you had me return and speak to the recipients the night before 
they would meet with his holiness. And, and, and I recounted that story that you, you realize you're just starting. And I couldn't believe the response from people. I had four or five people come up to me afterwards and say, I was getting ready to leave. There was one woman from Spain who, who stopped me in the elevator. And she said, I didn't think before this that I deserve to be here. And now I know that I, that I am. And I think that that's, that's what you're trying to do is you're honoring those people, right? Those people who, who aren't looking for any kind of celebration, who are doing the work for the sake of doing the work and, and don't feel like they're the quarterback or the, you know, the glory person in any way. And I was in touch, Chris, not to interrupt you, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, I was in touch with that lady uh, by email yesterday morning. Really? Uh, she's still doing her work in Cambodia, still making certain that this, uh, this underserved group of children will get the finest education that Cam Cambodia has to offer. And now some of her early uh, stead are getting the chance for higher education. So I think it's been absolutely uh, fantastic. Her name is Lydia. Her name is Lydia. Oh, she was amazing. And it was, and you just, you never know, right? You just don't know what everybody else is going through and what kind of feelings of insecurity they might have or taken from a, from a little village to, to the Ritz on, on Knob Hill in San Francisco, there's a, a bit of a culture shock there. And then also getting the opportunity to meet his holiness. Uh, so what has been, what, 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 what's been the result of, of those awards from, from those people? I would imagine you love being able to watch everybody who has received an award and see what they do afterwards. There's a surprising number who are still doing almost the exact same thing as, as they were doing then. Uh, they have stayed the course. It's not been something that they've given up. They have dedicated themselves, their time, their energy, their effort towards whatever cause. And, it, and there are a good number of people who are trying to uh, uh, stay in contact. Uh, one, one of our uh, helpers in the event, uh, a married couple, Gary uh, Rochelle and uh, his wife, Yuka, uh, to this day are working with uh, one of the uh, honorees who's been helping uh, needy kids in uh, Montana. Uh, they now have a couple of programs going and uh, they're all in touch. It's, 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 uh, it's really been heartwarming to know how many have stayed the course, uh, just as you have. Well, I think that's it, but it also has to be heartwarming. You, you give a lot to a lot of people. You said that, that sometimes receiving is the hardest part. You give a lot to a lot of people. When do you, when do you feel most alive? When I'm in a, uh, a third world country uh, with a financially uh, disempowered human being, uh, and uh, I have a, a lot of kids around. Uh, I, I love children. Um, not many men have a photograph of as happy as they get, but I do. Now let's see if we can get this one on. But this was, that was taken in Cambodia, and uh, there we go. And uh, that's, spectacular. that's about as happy as I get. 
that's for sure. Um, I have a great deal of confidence in the youth. And right now, I think that the youth are stepping up. We have a couple of major transitions, I think, coming up in our country right now. Um, I think lives matter. I think ecology matters. And I think the young people uh, are taking up this cause with a vigor that hasn't been as apparent for a number of years. And I think they're going to continue. Now we have to get them out to vote. We most assuredly do. Do you have any specific examples? I think you were telling me something about a couple of sisters in Napa. They were, uh, oh, be, be kind. They were, they were due here this morning and I think I'm double scheduled, which is not foreign to me, but yes, these, these were two girls, uh, uh, Tallulah and Ruby Finkelstein. I think they were bullied in part, maybe, perhaps, unfortunately, because of their Jewish faith and an unusual name as well. And so after a lot of hurt feelings, I know they decided, hey, hurt feelings don't help anybody. Let's see what we can do. And they started the Be Kind movement. And it now encompasses over 100 young people. It's been going on for approximately three years, maybe a little bit more. Uh, they're due up at the house later today, and uh, it is really, uh, I've got a bumper sticker on my uh, cars that, that just says, very simple, be kind. Uh, His Holiness one time was asked by um, a uh, priest who had traveled to Dharamsala uh, uh, from Italy, and uh, he spoke and said something to the effect of that prior to coming, he had studied a little bit about Buddhism, and, uh, but he would like to hear a description of uh, Buddhism by the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama looked at him and very simply said, my religion is kindness. <laughs> you know, what more do you have to say? The simplicity, it's really easy Absolutely. for most of us to make things more complicated oh. but you know, achieving simplicity have a, must have a million books on on spirituality you know and theology and all that stuff well i haven't read any of them but i am kind of upon a, a time or two and and they have actually Tallulah and and ruby have fifteen thousand of their be kind buttons that are spread throughout the world now. So they're spreading the message of being kind, which brings me to language. I assume that you speak Tibetan and Cambodian and, and all of these things, all of these places that you go. What's your language? I, I speak English relatively poorly. I know about 50 words of Hawaiian. And uh, in Tibet, I know hello, goodbye, and toilet important ones. How do you That's connect it. with these kids then? How are, how are you able to connect with the kids? That's a good point, Chris. I think about 20% of human connection is verbal. And uh, I think that people are great at consciously and subconsciously reading others. And uh, I'll tell you another thing that does cause me to, to connect a little bit. The, one of the universal truths is, is, is magic, as you know. And so I probably showed this uh, magic trick to thousands of kids. And if you're not a kid, 
it makes a kid of you. Do you have to expand your repertoire of magic as you as you go on? Or a little more, but not, nothing as handy as that. Nothing <laughs> as handy as that. Uh, my wife has seen this exactly 732,000 times. She's, yes, she has. Well, you said you've been together now for 61 years, you and Annie? 61 years married and uh, uh, 66 years together. 66 years together. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We, so how, how have you been? First, I might add. She asked you out first, really? We were both 17. She's 34 days older than I am. Well, it makes sense. She's older than you are. Yeah. <laughs> she'd ask you out because she's older than, than you are but wow yeah. how what what has that journey been like over over 66 years i mean obviously she's getting um, into heaven we know that part people always ask us you know what's the secret and uh uh it, it's hard to eloquate but um lord knows we've had our ups and downs and our spats but I think the uh, the advice I would give to any couple at any time in their relationship is help each other. To help each other, that's a good that's a good one. Like like being kind is it's a it's a good simple message. What's what's next? You said eighty two years old. What what's next? What keeps you busy? What keeps you physically busy as well? I remember hearing something about mountain biking. Are you still mountain biking? Mountain biking every weekend with Annie. We uh, we took our uh, our son, our sixty year old son, who's an excellent mountain biker, on our ride. And the next morning, he came over to our house and said, "You know, Mom and Dad, you really shouldn't be doing that ride at your age." Which means that we uh, we 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 are now doing the ride a little more regularly. But it's up and down and cross roots and rocks and all that, and it causes the occasional utterance of fear and. <laughs> <laughs> But nevertheless, you know, I don't accept a lot of help either. Um, for example, going on an airplane, if I've got a carry-on and it's pretty heavy and some guy sees that I'm probably an elder, comes over to help, I say, thanks very much, but I'll manage it. I don't want to get in the habit of receiving help. I want to I I stay as independent as I can. I just recently did a, a climb uh, called... Uh, uh, Via Ferrata and Lake Tahoe, which our oldest grandson, Sam, is kind of in charge of the whole uh, climb there. And the record was uh, 75 in so far as the oldest person to climb it. And uh, the record's now 81. And <laughs> uh, uh, I might go back this summer at 82. But I've always got these goals to, uh, to, to try and exceed what other people or sometimes even myself might say that, that I can't achieve. Is that what keeps you young? Is that what keeps you vital? Yeah, I think I got a good DNA too. Uh, I think that was a gift. I think uh, uh, my folks both uh, lived till approximately 90 as did Anne. So our kids have the longevity gene in their, uh, in their hopper. I think, I think age is here, Chris. I really do. You know, there are super important things. Diet, I'm not too careful about that. Uh, exercise, I do get exercise, but I'm, I'm not a gym person. Uh, and uh, all of these other things uh, are certainly important, but I don't think there's anything, I think everything is trumped 
by a positive mental attitude. Yeah, I think age is only a number. And uh, I think that you can continue to do, and I hope I can continue to do things for a long time. I don't even think about the age. Actually, I always think of myself as 37. The problem was that I thought of myself as 37 when I was 12, which caused my mother a great deal of distress. But 37 is a good number for me. Well, you pick a number and you just stay at it. You know, this, is the, this is the one that I want to keep. Now, you, you, did, you did mention the positive mental, mental outlook. And mm -hmm. I know that for you, you you've, struggled, you've struggled on both sides, right? You've struggled with the depression. And how do you, how do you maintain a positive mental outlook? Because it's easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think right now, number one is by not letting sloth enter your life. It's by getting up and doing it uh, and not becoming too old, too feeble, too, uh, too dependent, uh, anything of that nature. I just, I, just, I just feel that my glass is always full. You know, I don't believe in half empty, half full. Uh, occasionally I get down in the dumps, but I have to tell you, it's not very often. Depression, I've suffered for, my dad suffered mercilessly with depression. I, uh, it's one of the sad memories of my life. My dad struggled from the time I was four until the time I was 60. Um, and I wish he had had uh, access to better medications, uh, which are available now to, to treat that debilitating disease. And is it, is it a daily commitment for you? Is there, is there any kind of routine? Do you, do you have a mantra? Do you have a chant? Do you have, do you have a, a cup of coffee? No, I get up in time for the opening of the New York Stock Exchange, and that gets my blood flowing about 15 minutes before the opening. I've been a day trader for 70 plus years. So it's, it's Pavlovian in some ways, right? The, the ringing of the bell, the ringing of the stock bell is uh, that... It's like the opening of the starting gate at a racetrack, which is one of the most interesting places you can be. There's so much energy there. I love the races. You know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't see many of my co-vineyard uh, owners uh, very often. Um, I kind of find that a little bit boring, talking about food and wine all the time, you know. Uh, I, I'm very comfortable at the racetrack, and I'm very comfortable with... Uh, with uh with people who are are struggling i just had a great sit down conversation with a couple of homeless guys last week and and uh, i was walking down san francisco and there was a person really struggling with mental illness and i uh, talked to him uh for a few minutes and then i caught up with my best friend fred gilbert and he said he said uh, uh why did you why did you talk to that guy i said just because you're insane doesn't mean you're not human mm. Yeah. yeah, he's in our leaky canoe. That that is that is most certainly, and and many of us might hide it better than others as well. You know, the yeah. insanity. You know, or yeah, the absolutely. yeah. I, I didn't know what insanity was, and when they talked about it at, at, in groups, well, it's pretty damn insane to get behind the wheel of a car when you're inebriated. I don't mean uh, just over the legal limit. I mean inebriated, and I did that. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. Right, exactly. And, and, and you, live, you live to survive and hopefully help other people as, as they move forward 
And, yeah. and I'm living proof, uh, uh, Chris, that a blind pig can find an acorn. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dick, this has been absolutely wonderful. It's always a treat to be able to catch up with you and to learn from your wisdom and, and Annie's wisdom as well, which I'd imagine she's, she's taught you quite a bit along the way. So a lot. please thank her for sharing her wisdom with you and giving you an opportunity to share it with us. But keep up the great work. And I look forward to seeing you in person when we can get back go. to seeing each other in person. So thank you very much, Dick. Have a wonderful day.